Hello, my name is Dr. Benjamin Abella. I'm a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, where I also lead the Penn TTM Academy, the producer of this podcast. The TTM Academy is a group of faculty members and staff that are devoted to post-cardiac rest education and engaging with the broader community of emergency medicine, critical care, cardiology, neurology providers to help us all take better care of patients after cardiac arrest. Well, I want to thank all of our listeners. We just recently reached an important milestone, over 20,000 downloads of our podcasts. And this is from all of you, the several thousand listeners in the United States and abroad who have joined us in this journey of understanding how to take better care of patients after cardiac arrest. Well, today we have an important topic of discussion, a recently released, as in in not just recently, just the last few days, released randomized controlled trial focused on post-cardiac arrest care, uh, commonly referred to as the TTM2 study, although the formal name of the study is the hypothermia versus normothermia after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. That's the title of the publication, which is in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it just came out this week, June 16th, 2021. The TTM2 trial is a very important evaluation in a large multi-center fashion, looking at targeted temperature management following cardiac arrest, either 33 degrees Celsius, which as many of you know, has really been the standard for many years since the original uh, trials back in 2002. And this trial, the current trial, compared cooling to 33 degrees Celsius after cardiac rest to what they call controlled normothermia, where basically they had aggressive fever prevention. Now, why would they do this study? Well, it's important to put some context for those who are relatively new to this field. After cardiac arrest, many patients get fevers. And these fevers are not necessarily infection-related. In fact, most of the early fevers are not, but rather they're related to brain dysfunction. The brainstem is injured following cardiac arrest, and the brainstem in many ways controls uh, the neurohormonal response to temperature generation and thereby fever. And so many patients after cardiac arrest get fevers. These fevers have largely been thought to be bad. They injure patients. And this has been shown in numerous animal studies and a number of clinical studies as well. So so that uh, is not so much a controversial issue, that fever is probably bad for many patients after cardiac arrest. And so the authors thought, well, gosh, if this is true, maybe fever prevention is all we need. Maybe if we avoid fever in many of these patients, we're doing a good job and we don't actually need to cool them down to 33. That was also the basic premise of their earlier study, the TTM-1 study, which I've covered extensively in lectures and also on earlier podcasts, where they compared 33 versus 36. Now they're comparing 33 versus fever control, ostensibly at 37.5. Better said, if anyone got a fever over 37.8, they aggressively managed that fever, sometimes with a controlled device, temperature device that many of you uh, know in your centers. They they didn't require a specific device to be used, but, but many of them got these devices. And we'll get to that a little later. 
So this was the study, and it was um, the lead site was in Sweden, in Lund, Sweden. The uh, senior author was Nicholas Nielsen, a, a very serious and I think sincere uh, investigator who has pursued this for a number of years with a large team. And I congratulate Dr. Nielsen; he's really done an, an amazing piece of work here. A lot of work went into the study, and I also congratulate the first author, uh, Dr. Jankowitz, who uh, did a fantastic presentation on their live stream webinar the other day. Now. I want to uh, first give some context for the study that I think is important. Where did we come up with 33 degrees in the first place, 33 Celsius for managing post-arrest patients? Because we sort of need to know where we've been to understand the context for this current trial. Well, for easily three to four decades, extensive laboratory research in numerous animal models has shown that cooling after cardiac rest improves outcomes. Not only that, it's shown that the dose matters. The deeper animals get cooled and the faster they get cooled, the better the outcomes. So this has been shown in, by my count, easily hundreds of papers. And from numerous groups, numerous centers, uh, uh, cell systems, animals, and it's great mechanistic evidence. It's clear that cooling reduces brain swelling. It's clear that cooling reduces the inflammatory response and many other related mechanisms. Well, these laboratory studies led to a number of clinical trials, and you probably have heard of these trials, the HACA study in 2002, the Bernard study in 2002, the Hyperion study in 2019, recently, these were all randomized controlled trials that showed better outcomes after cardiac rest with cooling to 33. Then, there have been numerous observational studies, granted of lower quality evidence, but numerous observational studies from our group, from others, showing that when we cool patients to 33, patients have better survival and brain outcomes. Now, when TTM1 came out in 2013, it showed that outcomes were equivalent in a post-arrest population when managed at either 33 Celsius or 36 Celsius. And this caused a lot of controversy at the time, a lot of confusion. Some hospitals switched to managing at 36, some stayed at 33, some it was dealer's choice for providers in those hospitals. So it was kind of a mess, quite honestly. Well, a number of hospitals switched to 36, and several of them published on their results very bravely. And I would highlight two in particular. Nick Johnson and his colleagues in Seattle published in Critical Care Medicine in 2019. Um, Janet Bray and her colleagues in uh, Melbourne, Australia, in the journal Resuscitation in 2017, they showed in their hospitals that after they switched to 36, outcomes worsened. And we'll get to that later. So they then had switched back to 33. And more recently, two studies, one by Cliff Calloway in Pittsburgh in 2020, another by Dr. Nishikimi and others in Japan in 2021, both performed large propensity analyses of uh, post-arrest populations and found that 33 was better for select groups. 33 Celsius was linked to better outcomes in more severely injured patients, whereas 36 was preferred perhaps in patients who are less injured. So, in summary of all of this information I just gave you, uh, a huge body of evidence supports the notion of 33 as a, a target temperature, that cooling uh, improves brain outcomes. And newer studies have supported this uh, 2019 randomized trial and also these 33 versus 36 propensity studies. Okay, that is all by way of context. So now let's talk about this new TTM2 trial. The TTM2 trial 
As I'd mentioned, randomized patients after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, either 33 Celsius target temperature or controlled neurothermia with early treatment of fever. So if patients got above 37.8, they were aggressively treated, and a temperature-controlled device was allowed and indeed used in many of these patients who got fevers. <clears throat> this was a European multicenter study. I say European. It was broader than Europe, of course, but uh, the U.S. was part of it. But we have to be honest, they contributed very few patients. A large proportion was from the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, um, and others. So uh, uh, this is really largely a European study. Um, and, and that will become important because we have to think about issues of generalizability. And we'll get to that a little later. The study ran from 2017 to 2020, so it was a contemporary study, and it was really impressive, actually. I mean, uh, you'll, you'll hear me give some critique, but, but I have to congratulate these authors. This was a tremendously important and very huge piece of work. They enrolled 1,900 patients. Um, 1,850, 1,850 were evaluated for the primary outcome, which was death at six months. Also, a very strong um, outcome measure, not just survival. Um, at, at discharge, but they looked six months later. And then they also had secondary outcomes of neurologic uh, survival as well. That is to say neurologic status. Now, I won't bore you with too many of the details, but uh, but to say that it was well-balanced, the two groups had similar ages and comorbidity distributions and all that kind of stuff. For example, the mean age was 64 in both groups. And and, and I, again, I won't get into the baseline characteristics too much, except to highlight the following. I think it is very important to note that in both groups, the degree of witnessed arrest was very, very high. 91% or more had witnessed arrest in the TTM2 trial. 91%. Very different from what we see in the United States. Also, 78% or more had bystander CPR. 78% bystander CPR rate. Also, only about 30% of patients or less had any evidence of shock, meaning only 30% or less had vasopressors uh, for hypotension. So 70% had no evidence of shock. Also, most were shockable. 72% of the patients in their cohort had shockable rhythms. And this one really boggles my mind, honestly. 40% of their population were found to have STEMI. 40%. In our experience at University of Pennsylvania, about 10 to 15% have STEMI following cardiac arrest. So um, so it's important to highlight these, and we'll get to this, of course, later to speak to the issue of generalizability. It's also worth noting, I'm not sure what to do with this fact, but 79% of patients in their study were male. So an 80-20 male-female distribution. Um, so this, this population is clearly, out of the gate, a specific population with specific qualities. Now, their primary outcome, death at six months, was equivalent. There was 50% death in the 33 Celsius group and 48% death in the controlled normothermia group. So it was indistinguishable. Now, it's also important to note that um, they looked at neurologic outcomes using the modified Rankin scale, and there were also no significant differences at six months. And this was a blinded evaluation, which is a real strength of the study. And again, I congratulate them on, on their painstaking desires to try to blind what they could blind. Now, it's also important to note that adverse effects were the same predominantly in both groups. Bleeding, pneumonia, skin breakdown, sepsis, all were essentially the same. The only difference was there was a slightly higher rate of arrhythmia 
um, 24% versus 16% in the 33 degree group. Now, I, I got to say, it's not entirely clear to me what this means. It's very broadly defined, and I listened carefully to their live stream webinar, and it remained a little ambiguous. I wonder if simple bradycardia with some soft blood pressure is qualified as arrhythmia. If so, we know that bradycardia is extremely common with TTM to 33, so maybe that was the entirety of the... Um, of the arrhythmia question. We just don't know. But in general, the other adverse effects were the same and the outcomes were the same. So this study, much like TTM1 in my mind, is a wash. Same adverse effects in both groups, same outcomes in both groups. So it really doesn't, to me, strongly say once you do one or the other, it's a null study. And I think the authors would agree that they say it's indistinguishable. Where we may differ in our opinions is I think in the live stream and also in their paper, they strongly insinuate that this suggests that we no longer need to do TTM to 33 uh, Celsius. But I'm, I'm going to go into some detail why I I'm, think this conclusion may be a little bit premature. And, and I'll explain exactly what I mean by this. But first, I want to point out that we live in a challenging time with regard to science and evaluation of science. Social media, of course, allows people to rapidly give their hot takes, as it's called, and put out their opinions. And, and many on social media are declaring TTM dead. There's a lot of contrarians out there on social media. And I would suggest that perhaps we take a deep breath and um, I would say to them, not so fast. We really need to think of the study in the context of the larger array of studies that I've described. And, and I'll get into some details. Um, there's this eager desire sometimes to overturn 40 years of laboratory science, 20 years of fairly strong clinical science, I would suggest. And and I think it might be a mistake to quickly uh, throw out the baby with the bathwater here because it may indeed lead to some patient harm. And I'm going to explain what I mean by this. So first, the practical real-world experience versus the experience of controlled trials. I think this is a really important point. The, the Bray study of 2017 and the Johnson study of 2019 were basically a reflection of when real-world hospitals, not under randomized trial conditions, implemented TTM1. In the Bray study, they found that survival dropped from 71% to 56% when they switched to 36. The chance of a patient being discharged home versus a facility dropped from 58 to 40%. So they had clear evidence in the real world of harm when their hospital switched to 36. Johnson, same thing. Survival dropped from 45 to 36 when they switched wholesale to 36 degrees Celsius. So these two studies, I think, are cautionary tales that when we implement things in the real world, it doesn't always work out quite like the randomized trial would suggest. Is this solely because of the temperature, or does this relate to other aspects of care that are often linked to good temperature control, like other aspects of high-quality care? We don't know. All I know is these hospitals have now switched back to 33 when they saw that their change actually harmed patients. Now, the real-world experience also relates to two large studies that were published recently, one, as I mentioned, by Cliff Calloway and one by Dr. Nishikimi in Japan. Um, these two studies, both in the last few years, performed very careful propensity analyses where they looked at patients in their centers in the Japanese study all across Japan who received 33 and 36. And they found an important result, and both are very consistent with each other, that some patients did better, the sicker patients did better with 33, and the less sick patients did better with 36. And I think this really is a clue as to what may unify this entire field. Many will ask, how can we reconcile Hyperion, the study in France, which I'll describe shortly, looking at 
TTM 33 versus 37. How do we reconcile that, the Hakka, the Bernard studies with this new TTM data? And the Nishikimi and Callaway studies, I think, show us the way. It's not that one may be better or worse than the other. It's like anything else in medical care. For some patients, one therapy may be better. For other patients, another may be better. And I now want to get into this into more detail. When we look at the issue of generalizability, 91% of the TTM2 patients were witnessed, 78% had bystander CPR, 30% or less had any shock. All of this is consistent with their TTM1 population, and both of them, I would argue, are not very sick populations. High degree of witnessed, high degree of bystander CPR, very little shock. I wish I had these patients in my hospital. What I see mostly in Philadelphia, and I think many of my colleagues do around the U.S., is a high degree of non-shockable rhythm, a much lower rate of bystander CPR, and a much lower rate of witnessed arrest, and certainly a much lower rate of STEMI. 40% STEMI, again, it, it, I, I struggle to even understand that number in the TTM2 trial. I, I would love that to be the case in my hospital because, of course, STEMI implies we have some readily available treatments, that is PCI, to, to reverse the lesion. And we all know that patients with STEMI and arrest, if we treat the lesion, they tend to do much better. Now, let's make this generalizability comparison to published works rather than me just talking about my anecdotal experience. In the Callaway study, under 30% were shockable and only 15% had acute coronary syndrome. Very different than TTM2. Also, well over half of the patients in the Callaway study had shock and the patients with shock did better at 33. In the Nishikimi Japanese study, which showed that 33 degrees Celsius was better for sicker patients, only 55% shockable much lower than TTM2. Only 24% required PCI for coronary lesions, only a little bit more than half of TTM2, so a very big difference there. And only 51% had bystander CPR. Also, it's worth noting for those who really like getting into the weeds here, that the Nishikimi study, I'm really grateful to them for doing this, provided data on pH and lactate. Their mean median pH was 7.07 .07 and their median lactate was 9.4 post-arrest. That's very consistent with other studies and consistent with what we see in our system in Philadelphia. In TTM2, the median pH was 7.2 and the median lactate was 5.9. What does that all mean? Again, strong physiologic evidence that the TTM2 trial patients were a lot less sick than the real-world patients seen in Japan, and I would suggest in the real-world patients seen in Pittsburgh with Cliff Calloway, where well over half of the patients had shock compared to less than 30% in TTM2. One more example in the Johnson study, only 47% of patients had bystander CPR. And 60% had some evidence of shock in the Johnson paper. Now, you won't find that in the paper. That's from uh, personal communication with Nick Johnson when I asked him this question. And only 27% had MI. So in Johnson and Nishikimi, much less MI, much less by Sanders CPR, much more shock. In the Callaway study, much less bystander CPR, much more shock. And all three of those studies showed better outcomes at 33 for many selected patients. And then importantly, we have the Hyperion study. We would be remiss to uh, mention this. We have to talk about it. Very important, high-quality study out of France, multi-center ICU study, where they looked at neuro neurologic survival at 30 days. And, and you know, in, in the rush to accept TTM2, I think there's a, a little bit of neglect of this very important, well-conducted study. And this study showed a clear benefit to cooling to 33 for another select patient population, in this case, non-shockable rhythms. And in Hyperion by design, 90% of their patients had confirmed non-shockable rhythms, and over 56% had shock. So 
twice as many patients had shock, essentially, in their study um, as in TTM2. I think TTM2 does not refute Hyperion. They're, they're both excellent studies. They're different studies, and they include different patient populations. So if I were to approach someone and their mother had cardiac arrest, and it was a PEA arrest, and they were hypotensive on a presser, I don't know if I would feel right suggesting that we just do fever control, because I don't think the TTM2 trial really overturns the Hyperion trial. Different patient populations. It's an apples to oranges comparison. I think this is really important for all of us to keep in mind, that these studies are not all head-to-head. We sort of enjoy the blood sport of this study, refuting that study, overturning it. They're both valid, and I think both well-performed. They just enrolled very different patient populations. So if I have a patient who has shock, who shows significant injury, who has a PEA arrest without bystander CPR, I'm going to cool them to 33 because I just think the huge body of evidence over 40 years, the Hyperion trial, this stands in contrast to TTM. Now, what I do think, and I said this about TTM1, is that if I get a patient with bystander CPR, no evidence of shock, shockable rhythm, I might now just do fever control, which I think is a a step forward um, because we may not need to be so aggressive and spend all this effort for those patients. So TTM2, again, adds, like TTM1 did, a little bit more of our understanding that we can select patients for specific therapies. Now, I think there's one other really important point to make about TTM2, and that was the time to cooling. And Stephen Bernard um, was on the live stream with the group, and he made this point as well, I think uh, fairly uh, convincingly, that time to cooling may be very important. And then the TTM2 trial, it took over two hours um, from uh, arrest to randomization, essentially, um, uh, more than two hours. And it took, uh, by looking at their temperature curves, over six hours to reach goal temperature. So there was, in many many patients at least eight hours to goal temp and some uh, longer. So, uh, and many longer, I should say. So when we're talking about a door-to-cooling time of eight hours, one wonders whether uh, you lose a lot of the benefit. Um, In contrast, a large trial in the United States, our ice cap trial currently underway, requires goal temperature by four hours. So about half the time to cooling. And another large study published in the U.S. shows that benefit is much greater. This is from the Rock Consortium. Much better when you get cooling started in the first few hours of arrest. So I think there's a lot of evidence that early cooling is better or more effective, I should say. And late cooling reduces the benefit. And so whether getting cooling started or rather getting to goal temperature by eight hours basically um, attenuated a lot of the potential benefit of TTM in the TTM2 trial remains to be seen. But I do think that there is a lot of room uh, for studies of early cooling and whether patients got cooled earlier. And I would encourage the TTM2 investigators to do post-hoc analyses, I know they will, looking at time to cooling. I really do wonder if there will be a difference in outcome between 33 and controlled normothermia in all the patients who got cooled by a certain time frame, um, maybe by, say, four hours, which is what ISCAP is doing. So I think the big picture here, this is so common and and such a simple common story in medical research. A therapy comes out, there's initial massive excitement. This is what happened when um, Bernard and Hacka came out in 2002. Oh, this therapy is fantastic. We should all do it. It's great. This is seen in many fields. It's seen with new cancer therapies. It's seen with new infectious disease therapies. Witness hydroxychloroquine, uh, enormous excitement, right, for COVID. We remember that. And I don't, I don't mean to uh, do a direct comparison. That was pseudoscience. But nonetheless, the point is when a new therapy appears on the horizon, there's often massive excitement and enthusiasm, and everyone says we should all do this. 
Then the common part of the cycle is a, a study that runs contrary to that. And then there's this period of disillusionment. Oh, nothing works. We shouldn't do it. We're all misled. And, and that's, I think, what the TTM study of 2013 did. It created a real pause, and I think correctly, a real pause to say, hey, guys, maybe this isn't the best therapy for everyone. Maybe there's some subtlety here. And, and I applaud the TTM investigators for bringing a dose of reality to this. However, then what happens very commonly in this cycle of investigation, is somewhere in between. We realize, gosh, it's not so simple. It's not that it's all good. It's not that it's all bad. But rather, for some patients in some situations, it's good. For some patients in other situations, it's not necessary. And I think that's really where we're at now. I think many will read the TTM2 trial and become disillusioned and recommend their hospitals ditch the therapy altogether. But I think the Hyperion study and hopefully the other studies I've convinced you uh, contribute to this as well, that the reality is somewhere in between. I personally believe it would be a grave mistake to suggest that for all arrest patients, we do controlled normothermia. I think that would be a misreading of the science and a misreading of this very specific specific population that TTM2 enrolled. And my fear is we're going to go through another cycle here of what happened after TTM1, that many hospitals misinterpret this study, they ditch any temperature control whatsoever, and then we harm our patients. And then five years later, some papers will come out from experiences of hospitals showing that, whoops, when we ditch TTM, we worsened outcomes. And I really want to avoid that. I really want to avoid people getting hurt here. And so I think the TTM2 study definitely contributes. I fear, and I feared this from the live stream when I heard a lot of enthusiasm from ILCOR and others to reconsider the guidelines, that we should all take a deep breath and think carefully about this because this study did not show significant adversity with 33. So we're left with a therapy that is not harmful, that other studies have shown benefit. And I sort of feel that we have to think about who our patients are. In my hospital, where we have many unshockable rhythm arrests, we have very low rates of STEMI, I feel that 33 still has a role. I look forward to more discussion on this, and I'm sure the authors of the study will um, uh, produce further analyses and post-hoc uh, studies on their work, and I look forward to reading those. Um, I would point out in one final note that almost half of the patients in the control group of TTM had a device to do controlled normothermia. So if one reads the study and thinks, oh, I can just do Tylenol and cooling fans, you would be wrong. Uh, a huge chunk of the patients had a device to manage fever after arrest. So if you are going to ditch 33, at the very least, you really, really need to be aggressive about fever control um, if you're going to mimic what the TTM2 trial did. Okay, I will stop there. Thanks for hearing me out, and I look forward to what will almost certainly be very robust conversation over the coming weeks and months, but I would certainly encourage anyone from the AHA guidelines process or the ILCOR guidelines process, I would encourage cooler heads to prevail and to think carefully before we make wholesale blanket statements on what all post-arrest patients should receive, because all of us in critical care know that individualized, tailored patient care is often the best patient care. Thank you very much, and join us again for this TTM Academy podcast. If you want to learn more, you can go to penttm.com where we have resources, links to lectures, links to courses that we do. And I would point out in full disclosure, I do not receive any personal monies from the TTM Academy, lest anyone think that that is a conflict of interest. However, it is also fair to say that I have received uh, research funding from Becton Dixon, so it would only be fair and honest of me to say that, although I really do feel that um, my discussion here today uh, was true to the science. Thank you very much.